0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Everything Imaginable. I am your host, Gary Cacciolillo. And before we get started, I want to thank everybody for listening and also thank the contributors to my show, who are Candace Sanderson, author of The Reluctant Messenger, and Joseph Simkovic, author of How to Kiss the Universe, Mizaida, Aida, author, psychic, spellcaster, root worker, and witch. And you can find her at mizaida.com M-I-S-S-A-I-D-A.com. And this episode is being sponsored by Ginger Glasser. You can find Ginger at TarotByGinger.com. She's a tarot reader, evidential media, and a healer. And I highly recommend her if you need some healing or if you're looking into um, whatever, something that's going on in your life and you want some more information or background on it, I definitely recommend her. And you can find her at tarotbyginger.com. and now, without further ado, our guest for today is Brian Godawa, and he has written a bunch of books. The one that really got my attention was called "Is Called When Giants Were Upon the Earth: Watchers, the Nephilim, and the Biblical Cosmic War of the Seed." And so I understand it's kind of a unique book because it's like based. It's his research um, for his novels. Um, and, uh, you know, this is a topic that comes up on this show a lot. And I'm really looking forward to hearing his views on the Bible. Thanks for coming on today.
1: Thanks for having me, Gary. So,
0: is the Bible real? Are all those stories in there real? Are they accurate? What's happening in the Bible?
1: Well, you know, that book you mentioned, When Watchers Were, or when uh, Giants Were Upon the Earth, it's, it is actually my best-selling book. I've written, you know, I don't know, like 20-some books. And it's my best-selling book because it is the, it's the biblical and historical research that um, I used uh, to, to found my novel series, on, um, which ended up being a best se- best-selling novel series called Chronicles of the Nephilim. And um, the first book in that series is called Noah Primeval. And this whole, my whole journey sort of began with Noah Primeval, mm-hmm. uh, just to sort of like, you know, you know, let your, let your mm-hmm. audience know and understand where I'm coming from. <clears throat> I'm a Christian, and I've been in Hollywood as a screenwriter uh, for, for, many, for many years. And we're talking, you know, like, um, oh, maybe 12 years ago or so, I, um, I came up with a great idea to do a script, a movie script, about um, a, a Bible character that I started to do research on, that I found fascinating, that I had not seen before, and I thought, "Wow, this stuff would make real would make a really good movie." Uh, and of course, it was about Noah, and it was about what you mentioned—you know, the, the the Nephilim and such—and I'll get into that. But you know, Genesis six one verses one through four is was always for me um, as a believer in the Bible there is still a lot of strange passages that I didn't understand or that seemed bizarre, you know that kind of thing yeah, yeah, my that, that was will the definitely number one know it yeah, so it's like you know the the sons of God, which are heavenly beings, come come down to earth and and uh you know mate with the daughters of men and and they bore them Nephilim, which are giants, and it's like these were the great men of old, great you know. Gibberim, they call them right and it was just like what you know and and i just like i don't have to understand it i just keep going yeah you know, that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh but then um while i was doing the research for this this movie script on noah i discovered michael heiser and michael heiser is an evangelical scholar is probably most well known in in the world of of uh the nephilim and 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 such because his book the unseen realm has uh, really been um, a major influence, a lot of us Christians at least, who who are into it in, in studying the Bible and, and writing our books and stuff. Anyway, um, that was a major, major influence that, that really got me going. But but um, then I realized that uh, uh, Darren Aronofsky was making his Noah movie, you know, and I was just a little nobody in Hollywood. And so I, I just thought, you know what? That's fine. I, you know, He's probably going to get his movie made, and I thought, well, how can I get my story out? Um, and I realized, well, <clears throat> I need to novelize it, you know. So I wrote my novel, got it out like a year before the movie came out. And I thought, I thought he might have some of the interesting things I found, and it turns out he didn't. And it was a bad, in my opinion, it was a real terrible movie. <laughs> but um, with his rock monsters, you know. But um, but that launched me in my writing, uh, my novel writing career. But as I wrote the book, um, Noah Primeval, and it ended up exploding and doing well, and I thought, wow, I could have a good three books uh, in this series to go. Well, now I'm up to like 15, you know. <laughs> but, um, but that, and then what happened was, one of my favorite authors had always been um, Michael Crichton. And, you know, Crichton was just a genius in terms of seeing the, you know, seeing what's coming down the pike science wise. And he would write his novels based on sort of that cutting edge science. And and he would put his up an appendix at the back of each book, just sort of explaining a little bit of, of, you know, where he. Some of the where he got some of his research from, right, so I used that as an inspiration for me because i I knew that what I was going to write was a little fantastic, pushing the edges, and I thought you know in the religious realm, you know Christians and Jews um, and even Muslims you know they tend to have a uh you know a very high respect for the Bible, and you know if you 're playing around with it too much with your novels, right, you know sure. I thought they might be offended so uh, and, and I wanted to explain. Well, you know, this is a theological novel, and and I I got a lot of my research from actual ancient historical documents, and I interwove it with the Bible type of thing. So, um, uh, so I wanted to do, to so I wrote an appendix at the end of each of my novel in the series, and then then at the end of that series, I put all the appendices together into one book, and that became When Giants Were Upon the Earth. And be and that it surprised me because I just thought well maybe some people might want just just want the research you know they end up they, not everyone's into novels right mm-hmm. but I personally feel that the novel form uh, fiction is is fiction and drama is one of the best ways to really communicate philosophy theology whatever you want to call it you know your paradigm your worldview um, because it it uh, it it gives flesh to the the bones of research and, and study. So I like both myself, mm-hmm. and that's why some, I often will put out, now I put out almost uh, a book of research with each of my novels because I just love doing the research so much. So, <laughs> you know, I love both, but the end of the, at the end of the day, I really feel like, you know, um, fiction gives you a way to, to humanize it, you know, mm-hmm. to, to, to make it beyond the sort of, for some people, History and research can be sort of stodgy and dry and yes. boring facts. Not everyone likes facts, and I get that. So I like to humanize those facts and dramatize them, and and you know that. And then that's that's sort of the foundation of it all. But but the the particular approach that I found starting with Noah Primeval was I was just a sort of a normal evangelical Christian. Um, you know, I just believe the basic you know truths of the Bible. Nothing. Nothing unusual, right um, and uh, but when I just but when I started looking at that passage, I realized that there was this whole theological thread that went through the Bible and in 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 a way and that 's what I call the war of the seed but um, and we can we can get to that but mm-hmm. and it is rooted in this, this these nephilim and the Nephilim giants. And the Watchers, and the Watchers, these sons of God who are these heavenly beings. The Bible's writing about these heavenly beings interacting with humanity and such. And you know, I mean, most people, oh yeah, angels and demons, whatever, you know. But but there's no, there's a there's an actual um, sort of storyline that is driving a lot of the a lot of the stories in the Bible and it's and it's connected with a lot of the weird strange things that you read so a lot of you know like like I mentioned a lot of times Christians will just or Jews will just see the strange things and you know it's like we don't understand them we keep moving you know but this thread uh is is a thread that that I call the um the watcher paradigm or it's been called the Deuteronomy 32 worldview I'll explain that in a minute but it's it, it was an idea that also was reflected in other ancient Near Eastern uh, literature, whether Egypt, uh, Canaan, Mesopotamia. Uh, these all these cultures around which uh, you know um, Israelites or you know the family of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob uh, lived and 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 drew from in, as some of their sources as well. Um, and so I found that to be so fascinating. I wanted to integrate those two in a way that would make sense of, of why, why are there similarities? Now, it's very common in the secular world to find similarities between the Bible and other religions and just say, ah, yeah, see, they're all just copying off one another and making things up and, or, you know, they're just sort of, evo- religion is evolving and people are drawing, you know, taking other religions and changing them around. And, well, that's really not, that's really not a um a very good picture uh, accurate picture of of what I think is going on and and if you look historically in in ancient literature, yeah you do find some borrowing that does occur but I think that more it's 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 mostly explicable in terms of how ancient cultures draw from um the same sort of um what do they call a cognitive environment um, um uh, John Walton's a famous uh, theologian <clears throat> who writes on the ancient world. My goal is to understand the Bible in its ancient context and not impose our modern mindset upon mm-hmm. it. And in doing so, you you do discover that there's a lot of interaction. But I think mo- many of these cultures, and particularly the Jews, in in particular, because you know their monotheistic uh, religion was very specifically exclusivistic and polemical against other religions but that doesn't mean that they didn't draw from the same wellspring of imagination or um uh uh, or ideas like that that were around at the time for example there are you know moving into the genesis 6 passage you know this idea is that there are uh these you know watchers who are um for for lack of a better the easiest definition, I would say, think of them as they watch over the nations or they watch over uh, the cities and authorities on earth. That's kind of the concept that it means. And, and there's an there's a explanation of that in Daniel, a real sort of, not explanation, but a sort of a revelation of it in Daniel, um, the book of Daniel, where he describes these various princes of Persia, prince of Greece. Um, and and the, what, what it means is there are these spiritual authorities over the nations. And so the Watchers are these, you know, beings biblically that, um, I'm, I'm trying to, trying to like paint the picture here in a way that won't be confusing. So, so the Watchers come down to Earth and they connect up with the humans in some way. They reveal to them knowledge and such. And some of it's bad, some of it's good. And in different ancient cultures, like for instance, the, the um, Mesopotamian, uh, origin, I, I think there's a, a scholar, uh, Amar Anus, who's written on the Watchers, the origin of the Watchers, and he links it to the Apkallu, which were the Apkallu in Mesopotamian culture were these um, uh, wise sages <clears throat> that were otherworldly, that supposedly came, came to Earth and shared their information, uh, you know, civilization with humanity, right? and particularly with some of the kings. And so there's a lot of, you know, references to that in in Mesopotamian literature. And so there's a lot of overlap with some of the concepts also with the watchers in the Bible. Does that mean they cheated, they drew from it? Well, there's a connection there, but the the idea is that just because things are the same between different religions doesn't mean they borrow, it may mean Mm -hmm. there was an actual event that occurred and everybody had different interpretations, right? Mm -hmm. So, so we have to be uh, careful in how we do our exploration of, of these historical, you know, uh, religions and documents and such. Right. And so, because, because what, what you find in the Bible is there's a lot of what I call polemical storytelling, and that is they do make they do draw from imagery and references of, around, of other cultures, but they do it polemically, which means they, um, they, descri- they re-describe it. Uh, it's called subversion. They capture the imagery. They, they use similar imagery, but they redefine it within their own terms of their own culture. And so whereas in the Mesopotamian culture, the Apkalu were considered the, uh, you know, the, the wise, good ones and stuff, in um jewish culture they considered them evil and so they they called them the watchers and they you know they they believe that the watchers were beings that were fallen from heaven not good guys and that they revealed um occultic knowledge bad things to humanity Mm -hmm. um and such as war and and such things like that and and that that's the sort of the enochian paradigm and so so sometimes there's a, a polemic going on. One other example that I like to use is Leviathan. Mm-hmm. Leviathan is a common imagery in the Bible, and it's this sea dragon. And while some people, you know, I'm not a, I'm not a hyper-literalist, what, what I call is, those are, are Christians who believe that everything in the Bible that it says is absolutely literal, you know down to the last word the problem is is they're interpreting the english translation and they're not taking into account the genre of literature whether it's poetic figurative language right mm-hmm. or symbolism which there's a lot of symbolism yeah. in the bible so you have to be very careful about that i don't hyperliteralize so but but some think oh that's a that's a dra- a, a dinosaur you know I'm like no no it's not when you study the imagery of leviathan it's very clearly a symbol <clears throat> a sea dragon who symbolizes chaos and the chaos is the, the, <clears throat> and this was also a common idea in, in many of the ancient religions that, um, the sea or the desert, but the sea in particular was a symbol of chaos because it was deep and unknown, right? And, and all these monsters were in it and they couldn't, it was very unknown to them. It was very chaotic cause they couldn't control it. And so, uh, they used the sea dragon as the, as the symbol of chaos and the you know they believed that their god created order out of the chaos right and so the belief was that god pushes back the chaos and um and creates his order or his covenant with his people and particularly in the bible you know you read like say psalm 74 where it talks about moses going through the red sea and the waters were pushed pulled back And it says that god crushed the heads of leviathan that's that sea creature right well what what is that about right Mm -hmm. is that a large sea monster it's like well no what he's saying is he's symbolically describing that that um using a common imagery of ancient religion which is god um or the gods depending on what religion right conquer the sea or the ocean and the rivers and that is a form of expression of deity And so in, in this case, they say, no, no, our God is the God who, who conquered the oceans, conquered the rivers, conquered chaos, crushed the heads of Leviathan, which means he pushes back the chaos to create his covenant order with his people. Because shortly after that was Mount Sinai where they got the Ten Commandments, Mm -hmm. right? So there's a, there's a, you can see the theological symbolic thread going there throughout the Bible. And that's very common, and and it's interesting because Canaan also, the the Canaanites, uh, their their pagan neighbors, also had a used Leviathan, literally, it's called Litanu in Ugarit, but it's the same word, Leviathan, as the the Jews, and it meant the same sort of, it had the same sort of symbolism. So, using common symbolism and common imagery does not... It, it's just like just like any 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 person is a is a creature of their era. Like if I were to write a novel now, you know a sci-fi novel, right? It would mm-hmm. be influenced by um, Einsteinian physics, right? Because I, that's how we think. That doesn't mean that's right. We don't necessarily know how accurate right. that is, but it's the way we think. So that's how the Bible is in its context and such. And and I and I, I understand it and seek to understand in those terms, but I see it also as a sort of a polemical way where it's saying. These are the images that we have and draw from our culture, but we're trying to say our God is the God over over the gods, you know, and and these other ones are not. And that which the other religions think is good, we think is evil. Thus you have the serpent imagery is in all religions, right? Mm-hmm. And in many of the surrounding religions, uh, the serpent is considered a creature of wisdom, right? And in the Bible, it, the, it uses the serpent, Bringing a kind of wisdom, but not a good wisdom. Banquet, it's like no, it's yeah. the wisdom you're not supposed to have, which is, you know, taking control of your own definition of good and evil makes your you your own god, and and this is not a good thing. So that's the common that's the common notion there. That's that's gonna um, that I think uh, explains some of the similarities between the Bible and, and other religions, that is, they draw from the same cognitive environment, similar symbols. But they spin them to their own purposes and meaning, mm-hmm. and um, and so so yeah, I believe there's a lot of symbolism in the Bible, a lot. Uh, but does that mean I think it's all just legend and myth? No, I do not. I do. I'm a believer. I I believe that um, you know uh, I'm a Christian believer, and so I, I think that the Bible is a, a, a does reveal to us truths about from our Creator. However, he does so through very creative means and within the context of an ancient culture. So we need to understand that better, um, and not impose our own categories of modernity upon it, if that makes some sense. And I hope I'm not rambling off down a, a, a path too far. But to bring it back to the Nephilim stuff, then. So, so yeah, there are in all cultures. You know, Greek culture has the the gods coming down to earth, and they have the Titans, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so every culture does have reference to giants in some form. Most of those ancient Near Eastern cultures do in some way or another. Um, and so what's the point of these giants? These The Bible calls them Nephilim, right? And I know you've had guests on your show that, that have maybe explained this already, so I'll try to keep it simple, keep the, keep the, the story moving forward. And that is that um, when you read about their giants in the Bible, now we all know David and Goliath, right? Mm-hmm. Goliath, oh yeah, Goliath the giant, yeah, yeah. Well, he wasn't just one guy, one giant. I mean, there's actually references throughout the Bible in 2 Samuel and Chronicles where, where um, it talks about other giants who were seeking to kill David after he had killed Goliath. In fact, it's possible that they were a, a sort of a warrior cult that were trying mm-hmm. to assassinate him because there are several times when David is in battles and it says this, this giant, Ishbi Benob, was one of them. Ishbi Benob, you know, sought to kill David, and he was a giant, and one of David's mighty men killed the giant. And so, there's several of these references in the Bible. And and what's going on here? Is this just an odd anomaly? I don't think so. I think that. I think that um, uh, what's what's going on here is a theological uh, concept in the Bible. That but when by the time that Joshua gets to the the promised land, you know where where um, Moses brings them through the wilderness, they're out there forty years because they disobeyed God, and then Joshua brings them into the land, and it says that the land's crawling with giants, and they call them the Anakim, and in Numbers um, Numbers thirteen, I think it is. They say the Anakim are there, and that's like a, a way a, a maybe it's a clan, maybe it's just a. a um, a way of describing a people that are tall, and, and they come from the Nephilim. And so when you read about the Nephilim in Genesis 1 through 6, that's the only other place that the word Nephilim is used in the Bible. And those Nephilim were the bad progeny of the watchers mating with the daughters of men. Now why? Mm-hmm. Why is that bad? Because in, in the Bible, one of the concepts through of, of biblical teaching is holiness that is separation of that which is acceptable to to the God to God and that which is not sacred sacred space right and so um, one of those uh you know in in the Genesis creation account you read God separates the land from the the uh, earth from heavens God separates this from that right separates man from woman there's a separation and he also separates heaven from Earth and so the idea there is is that the heavenly realm the angelic creatures are not supposed to to mix with humanly creatures they're supposed to stay separate so when they violate that separation that 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 holy separation that god creates that's what makes them evil and that's what brings a curse upon them so when when the israelites are going into the promised land they're supposed to kill all the anakim which come from the nephilim which means they're connecting those giant people to those giant bad guys you know in in the um in Genesis, mm-hmm. and the, then the, the the whole campaign. This is why the holy wars are often misunderstood by people. You know, oh, that's genocide. You know, no, actually, there's a specific people that the the Israelites are killing. They're not killing everybody, and um, but they are killing everybody in these certain clans and certain people groups called the Anakim or the Rephaim, and several other names as well, Zamzumim, um, and uh, and, and several other giant clans, basically, and so they're connecting that to those evil um, hybrid monsters in order to cleanse the land. Now, people will have their political views of that. You know, that, you know, well, that's just justification for them to to, to take over someone else's territory whatever but um that all assumes that there is no god and and therefore everything has to be explained away but if there is a god who gives these these directions to his people then it's within that system it it makes perfect sense it makes more sense than when you just read the bible as this strange anomaly so when you see so when you see goliath getting destroyed getting killed then david First of all, Joshua doesn't kill, at the end of Joshua, the book of Joshua, it says that he killed all the Anakim in in the land, like you're supposed to, but he left some in Philistia. And what's Philistia? Well, Philistia is the home of Goliath. And so by the time King David comes, the first king, um, not the first king of Israel, but certainly the high king of Israel, um, he is killing, refram- <coughs> he's killing the Rephaim in the land. It talks about it and he wipes them all out. And so there, this is part of the theological thread that's kind of, um, going through the Bible that giants aren't just these strange anomalies, but they're actually mm-hmm. connected theologically. And then the other major component that I write about. So, so my novel series, uh, Chronicles of the Nephilim, my goal was, was to retell Stories in the Bible that have these giants in them, and make try to make more sense of them beyond just strange anomalies, but also they're connected to these watchers, and I'll, I'll explain that in a second. But so my novels were to retell Bible stories that touch upon these these creatures, these giants or or watchers in some in some way. So I'm not retelling everything in the Bible; just those stories, mm-hmm. like like. I do tell um, uh, Noah Primeval, and then my second book, which is a prequel, is called Enoch Primordial, and we can talk about the book of Enoch, mm-hmm. but he's also a character connected to those giants and watchers, yeah. and then also Abraham and then David, so I tell some of these stories all the way up to Jesus and beyond now. But um, So the, the other important part of of my writing is this watcher paradigm, and what that means is In the book of Deuteronomy, we see um, a passage, Deuteronomy 32, verses uh, like 8 through 10. It says that, um, well, let me, I'll just actually read because it's kind of interesting. It says that when the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What does that even mean, right? Well, again, through Michael Heiser's work, I I was introduced to understanding this concept. And what it is, is this passage is particularly talking about at the Tower of Babel, or Babel, you know if you know the story it's after the flood mm-hmm. and god starts all over but sure enough mankind becomes evil again and starts to build the tower to reaching to the heavens which is not literally trying to reach the heavens mm-hmm. it is it was like a ladder to the heavens by which the the gods could come down and and most scholars now you know believe it to be a ziggurat which we have a lot in in Mesopotamia right and the notion of the ziggurat was that the tower of that ziggurat was the temple of the gods, and the gods would come, and that's where they would supposedly, you know, interact with with the priests and therefore the people. So that that was the sort of reaching up to God, reaching up to the heavens, right? So that happens at ba- Babel, and God is, you know, it's like, in other words, man, and 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 their evil is uniting; it's becoming one, like a one-world government. I mean, it's literally that's what it was becoming. And so God says, this, there's no, there's no end to the amount of evil that can be done with this unity and evil. So I'm going to separate. And that's the purpose of the separate tongues and spreads people out on the earth, right? He, he spreads them out from there. Well, what's going on there? This passage explains how, well, when that, when that most high gave the nations their inheritance. So, you know, the concept there is that the, the, the nations, uh, in Genesis 10, there's like 70 nations in Genesis 10. And, um, those are the people groups that, that were created ultimately from the spreading out from Babel with different languages. Right. And Deuteronomy is saying that when God did this, when he divided mankind, he fixed their borders. He gave them territories according to the number of the sons of God. But, but his, he kept Jacob for himself. What that means is he's saying, and there's other, you know, there's other Bible passages that explain this, but the idea is that there. Oh, if the, if the, if the, if mankind is going to continue to refu- to refuse to worship the living God, he said, "Okay, I'm going to give them over. I'm going to okay, you want to worship these other gods? I'll give them over to you." And he places the authority of these of these various gentile nations within the Jewish paradigm. Um, each of the gentile nations are under the authority of the sons of God, mm-hmm. which were, these were these sons of God were these these fallen beings, right? And he's saying, "Okay, now you have authority over them." And they will be your inheritance. In the ancient world, they believed that the, um, the gods gave lands to people and the territories were very sacred and that they were their inheritance because you would give it to your children and your children's children, right? And so there's this inheritance concept with the land and God's saying, okay, your inheritance will be all these Gentile nations will have these other sons of God over you. They will be your gods, but I will be the God of Israel and, and they will be my people and i will create them right through abraham isaac jacob etc and so there's a separation going on and he's saying look you know it's sort of like giving them over okay if you're going to be this way i'll let you have what you want see what see what that gets you you know that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh and so they are under these beings and sure enough they they worship them and and they create all these various religions so the idea is that in the Bible, as in other ancient cultures, they believed that uh, authorities such as nations, cities, and even kings at, at different levels or in different ways had supernatural or spiritual authorities over them, mm-hmm. such that, and they were connected, and this is where you may have heard the phrase, as above, so below. Mm-hmm. Um, some people say that's, that's from the occult, no, actually it's an, it's an ancient concept that believes there was a connection between heaven and earth and that's what, that's what mankind was always trying to do in the ancient world, connect heaven and earth and um, that's what the temples are all about and that's what the ziggurats are all about, uh, the Tower of Babel, right? It's trying to connect heaven with earth. Well, this, this um, connection of, of heaven and earth is what brings about this, this also this our attempt to, creates this massive evil. So I think I was losing track of where I was going with this. Um, so so God divides them at Babel, and then um, he creates his people. Oh, that's it, the, the authorities and the powers over the, over the people. So they believe then that um, when there was a war on earth, there was a war in heaven. In other words, um, there were spiritual principalities or powers, territorial spirits, whatever, there's various words and concepts, you know, but nonetheless, earthly authorities, earthly nations had over them um, uh, heavenly gods or beings who watched over them, sort of speak. And by the way, Plato wrote about this in the *Cretus*. You know, um, he believed that as, as well. There was, you know, like I said, it was pretty much all over the ancient Near East. And so, um, what does that mean? So that means, um, oh, as above, so below, right? So Jesus said, on earth as it is in heaven so how do you get that what what happens then when you have battles on earth you have battles in heaven therefore for example in the book of daniel when you get to what is it uh say i think it's daniel 10 is it yeah daniel 10 he talks about the prince of persia so daniel's having this vision and he's seeing this angel being and He's telling him about the Prince of Persia in Daniel 10, and how he's striving, striving with the Prince of Greece. And these are spiritual princes, by the way. Scholars pretty much agree on that. You know. And what does that mean? Well, if you understand the context of the book of Daniel, Daniel had all these prophecies about the historical progression of the kingdoms that were controlling Israel. So if you If you know history, uh, first Babylon was you know had control Nebuchadnezzar, right He had control of Israel, and then the medo-Persian kingdom overthrew Babylon or overthrew you know Babylonia, and then Greece came, which Alexander right he came and overthrew Persia, and then ultimately Rome overthrew Greece, right mm-hmm. and so when he's describing Prince of Persia, and the Prince of Greece fighting, he's referring to that Greece and Persian conflict in history that occurred, and he's saying that while that 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 fighting is going on, there's also the same striving in the heavenly realm with these territorial powers. So that's the that's the concept of what goes on. And then for the Christian biblically, what 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 we believe is, if you read Psalm. 82, um, that's another interesting psalm because that sort of wraps it all up and it says, look, you know, God, God is in the, in the place of his divine counsel with these sons of God and he, he condemns them. He says, you have not ruled justly, you have ruled wickedly and therefore the foundations of the earth are shaken and I said, you are God's sons of the most high, but you shall die like men and fall like any prince. So god says i'm going to judge these territorial powers and rulers and i'm going to judge them because they were unjust rulers right the gentile nations all these pagan nations they're they're unjust so i'm going to judge you one day and then the last verse of psalm 82 points to messiah when it says arise O god judge the earth for you shall inherit the nations this is messianic language throughout the old testament inheriting the nations is what messiah would do the son of david and arising, oh God. Arise in Greek was is the word used for resurrection. Mm-hmm. The Apostle Paul makes that connection in some Old Testament passages. So I think the the point here is he's he's referring to the Messiah in some way and and obliquely at least to the resurrection. So Messiah, there's a promise of the Messiah. When he comes, his resurrection will grant him the power and authority. He would and there are other passages about this. I don't want to, you know, take up all the time here with it, but but the idea is when Messiah comes, and this is the wrap-up of the whole, what is this storyline I'm referring to, this thread line. So if the watchers are, are watching over these nations, they have authority over them, but they're bad guys, right, and yeah. Gentile nations are. But when Messiah comes, he will disinherit all those gods because he will be enthroned as king of the earth. And Messiah, when the, the idea in the New Testament is when Jesus resurrects from the dead, he proves his authority by that resurrection. And then when he ascends into heaven, he is seated at the right hand of God on the throne over the earth. So when Jesus is enthroned in heaven over the earth, that's when he disinherits all these other territorial powers. They lose their powers and they're destroyed and they're judged. And so the idea is that when Messiah comes, he will do that. And that's what the new covenant is. Mm -hmm. Theologically speaking, the new covenant is that he, Jesus as the Messiah has victory over these, these other earthly powers, which then allows peoples from every tribe, tongue and nation to come into the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's sort of the new covenant message is the, you're no longer under the, under these Spiritual dark powers—you're no longer imprisoned spiritually, and that frees people up. And and that's what you know. What the claim is, is and then that's what allows people from every tribe, tongue, and nation—they're no longer in bondage. They can actually come into God's kingdom through Messiah. And that's sort of the big storyline. You know, if I you know forgive me if I'm mm-hmm. blabbering on too long, but that really does sort of encapsulate the theological messaging that my whole story. Line is about in Chronicles of the Nephilim, and then I have several other chronicle series that are interwoven with that: Chronicles of the Apocalypse, mm-hmm. and Chronicles of the Watchers, and all those are integrated um, with each other to sort of communicate this this um, war of the seed, this between the bad guy, the bad bad heavenly powers, right, mm-hmm. and God's people on Earth, and 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 as I tell the story. Depending on where Israel is, whether they're in Egypt under Pharaoh or they're in Canaan or surrounded by other pagans or in Babylon, they they interact with those cultures they um, they come to understand the worldview of their own enemies and so in in all my novels, I try to incorporate, even though I have this biblical paradigm, I'm trying to incorporate also the ancient understanding of those same concepts, you know mm-hmm. so so for for instance in you know in canaan i try to integrate the baal epic because the baal epic is baal was the the high god the most high in canaan under the sky god El, but he was the most high and uh, there's a lot of baal references in the bible that sort of say baal was a storm god right and so he was the high god and he was a storm god and the bible uses language that's used of baal and it points it towards Yahweh, which is to say, again, polemically saying, Baal is not the storm god, Yahweh is the storm god. Hmm. So in my novels, I try to bring in the Baal epic and their religion and try to explain it in that context of how, how these two can have similar ideas but also have different ways of seeing seeing the world, you know. And so in a way, when you read my novels, you're actually learning a lot about the the not just the the Hebrew, Biblical, paradigm but you're learning what are the stories and what are the narratives of the cultures that they are within and so my last novel that i wrote was uh just within this this year was moses against the gods of egypt and i just i studied you know egyptian religion which was so fascinating it's just Mm -hmm. it's also complex (laughs) and more more gods than just about anyone and um and so I tried, I sought to, to and, and I actually think the, if you look at um, uh, the book of Exodus, it's highly Egyptianized. There's a lot of Egyptian influence in the literary structure and the way that Moses is writing that, and which sort of reflects the fact that, after all, the you know, Israelites were there for 400 years, and Moses was raised as an Egyptian, so it would make sense that he draws from the Egyptian worldview, but then as he meets the living God, he sort of, finds out the truth and sort of and then he you know retells the story from his own understanding you know and and so i tried to incorporate the ancient egyptian religion and show how it made sense in context of the hebrew understanding i don't know if that's um that's uh helpful or not but that's sort of the big picture Mm -hmm. of all my writing and what it's sort of encompassing Mostly of my novels, but I, you know, I've written, like, as you mentioned, I do have a few, uh, research books, but, um, mostly the novels. And that's sort of the story it's telling. And it's telling it in a way that, that also educates people about the ancient world. But also I, look, I, I, I have the spiritual world in there. I have angels mm-hmm. and demons and stuff. And so there's obviously speculation and some fantasy. I, so I wrote the books sort of like, it's sort of like reading the Bible like Lord of the Rings. And, <laughs> and, 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 and I did that deliberately because, you know, we don't really see the spiritual world. The Bible tells us a few things about it, but not a lot, you know. And so, so I thought, well, I want to show the spiritual world and say well, what might be happening in the spiritual world if it's true that the spiritual world is linked to the heavenly, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, so, I'm sorry, if the heavenly world's linked to the earthly world, what might have been going on in heaven where the battles that are going on between the various spiritual powers while these battles are going on, on earth like for instance in Egypt, right? So I, you know, I I, I do what's obviously fantasy speculation and I have these these various um angelic divine beings and 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 they're bad guys and they're ba- they're jockeying for power like the mafia right and um and so uh you know I push I push the limits in that sense to make it more entertaining and interesting mm-hmm. and I even have that I told you the creature leviathan which is a um you know a symbolic sea dragon of chaos well I have I have that character appear in all my novels because chaos is very important. This idea of creating order out of chaos is very crucial to the whole Bible. And so he shows up as a real creature. Mostly, most of the time he's in the spiritual realm, you know, but sometimes Mm -hmm. he, you know, he has that effect on, on his real world. I do have Leviathan showing up at the parting of the Red Sea, you know, but it's in the spiritual realm. And, and so that's kind of how I write. And, and like I said, I, I thought it would be, you know, you might think that religious people might be aghast at that sort of uh, creative license, shall we say? But it hasn't been the case. I mean, sure, there's always some hyperliteralists who who uh, react and say, you know, you're playing with the word of God. But mm-hmm. you know, 99.9 percent of people that that respond to me have said that they've really appreciated the imagination and it's helped them appreciate the Bible and enjoy it more than before because it brought it brings alive. A lot of those bizarre things we don't understand, or dry passages that are sort of like weird, or the stranger things passages, like the giants, right? And they said that it finally made sense for me um, again by bringing it out in this storyline. So that yeah, that's sort of the the big picture of it. And you know, I'd be happy to to zero in on anything specifically if if you have something you want to focus on. A whole
0: bunch of stuff. I have a ton of questions here. <laughs> <laughs> like when you say like like first of all, like, like the heavenly realm and the as above so below well, when you're talking about the heavenly realm, are we talking something about something like the astral plane?
1: Um, now I'm not as familiar with the new age I'm only vaguely familiar with mm-hmm. the new age concepts, but um, uh, I don't know how how would you define astral plane then? Rather than, than
0: something way up above us is like, say it's um, a sense of being that that surrounds us everywhere. And before something comes into physical manifestation, it has to exist like basically like in, a, in a form of thought.
1: Okay. Okay. Well, there might be some similarities there. Um, I would say that the biblical picture of the biblical picture does use the the heavens above us,
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, as a, as a generic reference, you know, cause it's above us. And do they believe that it was all literally above them? No, I don't think so. I think they believe that it, it does encompass the stars and such, you know, they had this interesting concept of the stars and, uh, as being divine beings and such, but, but they believe that the heavens, that there was a heavenly realm. So I would say that it's more like a, an, another dimension, you know Mm -hmm. biblically speaking i think it's another dimension so for example um this is what allows angelic beings in the bible to be able there the bible describes them as not just spirits as in spiritual beings but as they they actually have flesh like the book of jude says that that the um you know, at Sodom, where the man goes, give us those men who visited you. Those were the angels, that right? And they were they were at, clamoring for the angels because they wanted to have sex with them, right? Mm-hmm. And Jude says that that was going after strange flesh, and what that means is is that was that notion of human flesh wanting to connect with angelic flesh, which means angelic beings are not pure spirit. They are they have a, a kind of flesh that can obviously. Biblically speaking, they can appear on the earth, right, mm-hmm. am- am- amongst human beings. So it's not always up in heaven, right? right. And so, so, it, so I think the best way to describe it is an interdimensional. Again, this is my Einsteinian mm-hmm. way of understanding things, or uh, I don't know if that's quantum physics, but certainly a dimensional physics, right? right? And um, so that's how I see it as they're interdimensional beings, and and um, uh, th- and of course they're different paradigms. Have different ways of trying to to describe that 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 you, you, what you might call astral plane, mm-hmm. but um, uh, yeah. So de- so this is what what allows angels to be able to appear or not appear. Uh, Jesus, once he was transfig, once Jesus was resurrected and ascended, he was changed. He still had a body mm-hmm. and a flesh, but it was different. It was transformed. We don't know what that means. It was glorified. But it allowed him to be able to go through walls, but he could still eat fish because this, this is what it says in the New Testament. Even though he was resur- yeah, even though he was resurrected and he had trans changed his body, he could still eat, and so he has a physical body, but it's different and it's changed, and that's the biblical picture. Is that um, uh, interdimensional? I think is the best way to depict it. You know, mm-hmm. but you know. Heavens is still a great metaphor, in my opinion, for just describing the fact that it's, a, it's above and beyond. It's transcendent, right? Mm-hmm. You know, the spiritual realm in the Bible is transcendent.
0: The, the other question, I'm sure you get asked this one a lot, too, mm-hmm. is why would God allow bad guys to begin with? Why would he allow beings to oppose him? If he's creating them, like if I'm going like, to... like Say for instance, when we have children... We don't want our children to go against what we want them to do. So why would God allow that?
1: Well, think of it, you you pick up a great paradigm, you know, I mean, the traditional Christian answer for that has always been, um, well, would you want to then chain up your children and force them to do the right thing Mm -hmm. with every move? Uh, force them against their will? No, you wouldn't. You want them to choose you freely, and I think that that that's the free will defense. Of you know, if if we were robots or controlled and made to be perfect and didn't because the notion is that there was a free will in the garden and 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 Adam was you know drawn away by his pride by his desire to be like God to have that power and glory instead of instead of willfully sort of submitting and submitting to his creator. It's like, well, I want to be like him where I can know good and evil myself. I can Mm -hmm. define it for myself. So that's the Christian notion is, you know, the free will idea, you know, but there's another component too, where, you know, biblically speaking though, I I would, I would say that, um, you know, and this is the, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, non-Christians aren't going to like, but you know, so what (laughs) from my perspective. And that is The Bible says that God is is sovereignly in control, you know? I mean, it says that he raises kings and he lowers kings. He destroys kingdoms and he raises them up. God is the one who's ultimately somehow, in some way, he is sovereignly in control of the things that are occurring, and you say, well, then does that make him the author of evil? Is he doing the evil things? Well, no, no, God doesn't, God himself can destroy the whole universe if he wants, because he created it, right? God, for God to destroy someone is not, make him bad at all it just makes him the creator it's bad for us as creation to kill and murder someone else but god's not wrong to kill his creation if he wants to he chooses not to but but nonetheless he he does premise a lot of his actions upon the actions of humanity and so when humanity's sinful he sends a flood and kills everybody and sometimes that includes the so-called innocent people that we think are innocent right Mm -hmm. but the point is is um uh the the thing that people who non-Christians don't like is is that is to say that, you know what, God is sovereign control and he has a purpose and a reason for the pain and the suffering or the evil he allows uh, because he promises that he has a paradise, you know, a, he, he promises a future <laughs> that is where all, all things are, you know, summed up in him, all things are made new, every tear is wiped away, right? He promises us this and he's working towards that goal and and we don't understand how that works and we don't you know this is what most people who want to be like Adam they want to have the knowledge of good and evil they want to know everything like god they want to be god and know everything they demand well if god doesn't give me a good reason why he's allowing all this evil then he's no god well mm-hmm. that's ridiculous i mean he has a reason but we don't know what it is he hasn't revealed it to us and that's sorry but that's you know that's just the bottom line truth from my perspective and understanding um he promises that there's a reason, good reason for it, and it's all going to wrap it up, and he's all going to, you know, be, uh, he's going to redeem all of creation, right, so to speak. And so, um, uh, so he has that promise, and it. But like I said, it's the same. It, how do you understand it? it's the mm-hmm. same way as you say, okay, you you, uh, your child doesn't understand why are why is my daddy standing there and allowing this man to to jab me with needles and give me something that's making my body burn like why is my daddy doing this to me and then you find out oh well the kid had rabies and he was getting rabies shots that ended up saving his life so it's like you you don't just because you don't know an answer why something is there doesn't mean there isn't an answer and um i know that that's not satisfying to people um no i want uh, answers (laughs) right but but logically it, it but logically it's 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 um irrefutable Mm -hmm. it's just not emotionally or psychologically acceptable to us right Mm -hmm. however um i'd still think that the concept of you know the you know the basic understanding of free will to me makes makes a lot of sense anyway it's just like you know yeah i mean if god's gonna force us or make us robots well then we wouldn't it wouldn't be it wouldn't be a loving an actual relationship we have to choose to do so but that that freedom to choose also gives us the freedom to choose wrong And unfortunately, we, we've chosen wrong. And, and don't forget, sin compiles. And you know how it is, you know, like you tell a lie, then you got to tell a lie to cover the lie. And then before you know, you're lying, 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 right? And you're, and you're starting to hurt people's lies by your lies simply because you did one wrong thing and it led to more. And, and that's how I would describe the world that we live in. There's so much compounded evil because of that first. You know, direction by humanity to, to make the wrong choice, and then it compounds. You know, so eventually, though, I would say, biblically, God says He promises to make all all things right in the end. There will be a there will be a reconciliation, and there will be a judgment, and and there will be um, a making of all things new.
0: That's where I struggle. Like I, I like, we go through daily life with all this suffering and, and pain and struggle, and. I'm supposed to believe that all this is happening for a reason and that God is benevolent and everything's going to be redeemed in the end. You know, that's not fair. He gets to hang out in his cushy heaven while everybody
1: else is suffering. That's BS. (laughs) Oh, no, no, no. No, you know what? I I tell you what, though. I do believe that is the number one issue that, that... Is a legitimate struggling issue for humanity Mm -hmm. because in all of my novels, pretty much all of them, I, that's also in my own life. I I hear where you're coming from. I do struggle with the evil and the suffering, more suffering than the evil in a way. Evil causes the suffering, I think. Right. But, but suffering. Yeah. I, I do think that that is a, as a human being, that should really bother us, you know, and, um, uh, and so it, it ends up being a, a major theme in most of my novels because I do believe it's the, un, the one universal truth that we struggle with, and that is that, that the suffering. But you know what? i got to tell you, personally, I think uh, Dostoevsky has really, you know, um, Brothers Karamazov, just, I mean, he's, he's just one of the most phenomenal writers. And he pretty much just nails it in that novel. And, you know, you've heard of Ivan, you know, the, 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 the two brothers, Ivan and Alyosha, and Ivan is the, has turned bad and turned against God. They both were started as Christians, but Alyosha, or Ivan turns against God because of the very thing you're saying. And he describes these scenarios like, what kind of a good God loves this, you know, this little girl. He describes an event that actually was similar to something happened in Dostoevsky's newspapers at the time, you know, like this, this, uh, couple, this couple who had a child, a little girl, a little, uh, little child girl, and, and they beat her mercilessly, whipped her and beat her every day, and then they put her out in the toilet. And it made her stay out in the stench and, and the and the and the refuse, and she got it all over her body, and and they beat her till you know till she died, and and it's like, you know, he goes, I I as a god would not allow, would would not allow or what kind of god allows this kind of thing, and the idea was, um, I would not allow one one single child to 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 suffer that, you know, I would especially if they were my own child and and Adel, she explains well that's what jesus did for you jesus is that son that willingly took on all that suffering the c- curse of the sin he took it upon himself and in a way that's what god did for you for us he he entered into creation and suffered with us so it's not like he's distant and you know removed from us mm-hmm. i don't believe that at all i believe by becoming human by becoming man that's the whole power of a God who really does care because he enters into the suffering of his creation and he takes it upon himself so that we can't say, you don't know what it's like and why are you doing this to us, you know? He actually willingly does so when he didn't have to. Um, so, you know, but again, like I say, yeah, I, I mean, uh, a, a person who... Yeah. So so there's going to be people who, who will never accept that someone else is in control and they don't like the way they're doing things. So I, I understand that. Mm-hmm. I don't agree with it. But uh, when it comes to the creator of the universe, I think another human being sure, sure should not control us, et cetera. But, but when it comes to the creator of the universe, um, I think logically speaking, well, of course he can do anything he wants. He can make us he can forcibly make us all suffer if he wants and it doesn't make him good or evil because he's the creator you can make a a clay pot and destroy it or you can make a clay pot and use it for good uh there's no when it comes to the creator he has the right to do anything he wants and i don't think that's how god operates but Mm -hmm. that's that's his prerogative but the fact that he chooses to still love us and and seek us that's you know um despite all that suffering issue uh, I do believe it's real, so. Mm. But I hear you.
0: <laughs> it's, it's just a tough one. Like a lot, if I were God, right? I would have created the Garden of Eden, bunch of food, and it would just be nothing but love. Yeah. You know, it would be perfect. It would have been like the way he was before they ate the fruit. I would have just never put the damn trees there.
1: But if you put, but if you didn't put the, by the way, you know, okay, yeah, I'm speaking of this theologically. Mm-hmm. Would you, um, if there wasn't a tree, then he wouldn't have that choice. I think the whole point of the tree is it's giving man the free choice. If he doesn't give man the the theological point of the tree, there is if he doesn't have a choice to do good or evil, or oh, I'm sorry, if he doesn't have the choice. Mm-hmm to follow and obey god from his own will then it's not a relationship and it's not um it, it, it's yes yeah, it's, it's not a relationship you're just you're just a like um i don't know you're just like an ant that just does what it's programmed to do you know what i'm saying that's 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 how i see it right so you got to give him the choice and of course what did he choose he chose the wrong thing you know right. So I, I, I think it's more man's fault than God's fault in that mm-hmm. sense.
0: I kind of like like, you're, like one of your other things that you do is like you're a screenwriter and a film, film guy. You know, like what if this is just God got bored, he needed something <laughs> to entertain himself with, and that's it. He just did this whole thing out of his own selfish desire to be entertained, and he gave his free will just so he wouldn't know the ending of the movie.
1: I, I don't think that's possible because God knows all things and he would know the future. And so, um, I really think he just did it for relationship. He, why does God need other people? No, he doesn't. But, but here's the Christian, here's the Christian view of things. Um, the Trinity, you know, what's the point of three in one? Well, if God is a solitary unity, mm-hmm. absolute monotheism like Islam, right? Then that actually does make him in a sense, immovable mover, it makes him a solitary unity that does not know plurality or diversity. And so he cannot have relationship. By definition, that kind of God could not have relationship, Um, which is one of the reasons why I don't think it can exist in Mm. that form. Uh, A God of just two, okay, that brings in plurality and interactivity, but it's, it's, I don't know how, it's a dualism. It can't extend beyond that. But if you have three, now you have you have a philosophical and whatever you want to call it, a, a worldview foundation that can make sense of unity, things that are unified or singular in the world, but also things that are plural in the world and things that have relationship. And it's not just a dualism, it's it's a relationship is in mm-hmm. community. In other words, if it's just you and I we can call it, we can call that a community, but we know that that's not really a community. A community would be three people. And humanity, uh, we operate as communal beings, right? If mm-hmm. we, if we, and I know, I don't know about you, but I'm a writer, so I tend to spend too much time alone. <laughs> and, 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 and the more I, I don't interact with people, the worse person I become, to mm-hmm. be quite frank. Um, and, and, and it gets more difficult for me to interact with other people, but it's not enough for just me and my wife, which I, my wife is, I could be happy. Sometimes I think I'd just be happy, just me, and my wife, and that's it. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, it wouldn't be because it's by interacting with other people that third entity, so to speak, outside of the two, that gives sense and meaning to our humanity, right, and to existence. And so, I think the Trinity has that relationalness that none of the other um, notions of God can actually bring. Certainly not absolute monotheism. And I say absolute in the sense of just one and and. The Trinity is not three gods it's three persons in one God and you know it's that's been a, also another debate in forever that you know how could that be and all this but but philosophically speaking it there's no logical problem with it it's just it, it's just uh it, it's really more of a def, definitional problem but but I think that um uh, that that relationalness is how is what makes God Transcendent and more than just so, all this stuff you describe is the kind of thing that the I would argue the the Muslim God could be like. Mm -hmm. You know, he could be that way because it just nothing. There is no morality with that kind of a being. It's just what he does is what he does, and whatever. And in a sense, my understanding of God is, if he's the creator, he could do it every once. I mean. I mean, how can, how can any of us look and say, that's not fair. Well, who are you? You know, it's like, where were you when God created the stars? But, but apart from that, okay, that's on one level. I, I, I believe that, that, um, that that's the case, that in truth, the creator does have the right to do whatever he wants. And, and for us to say, you shouldn't do this, you should do it my way is kind of ridiculous to me. Mm -hmm. But, but. But interestingly, I don't think God reduces to that because I think that because the Christian God is a trinity, it provides, he, of himself, he is a relational being. And so when he creates us and when he does what he does, he doesn't do it arbitrarily is my point. And that's the, I think that's the the claim or the, which again is another thing that I have in most of my novels because it is, I I understand that struggle. Um, And that is, is God... Uh, arbitrary or capricious, right? Just does anything in what, what sense is that as? well? I don't think he does. I think he could if he wanted to because he's creator. But I don't think he does because um, because of that relationalness of, of what he is. And so therefore, um, he he creates in such a way that establishes relational categories and interactions mm-hmm. with his creation. And that's why, again, we're back to the free will thing. That's why he gives us the free will to do it. And yeah, he could do it all, make it all work and fit perfect, but then it's just like a child with toys, toy, you know, Barbie dolls and, you know, G.I. Joe dolls and just, there's no real, there's no being in those creatures, there's, and there's no relationship. Only if the creatures have that free will can they interact relationally like the three beings in the Trinity talks about father son holy spirit that's not arbitrary mm-hmm. that's a relational that's a relation and a family relationship description at least you know yeah and and so that's how that all makes sense to me philosophically or theologically and so um yeah so i don't think we have a lot to complain about you know well that's not fair or mm-hmm. you know you can't do it that way it's like this is what he's given us and the fact i would argue the very fact that someone does not want does not accept the way god god is doing things is the problem <laughs> that's what that's what that's what we have to get over i too felt that way at one point in my life until i realized no wait i'm the sinner i'm the one who violated god's laws and god's goodness and rules you know love your neighbor i'm the one that's selfish god's mm-hmm. not selfish and i'm projecting my selfishness on him you should do things my way oh that's me trying to be like adam like god and it's like okay i humble myself and when I submit and just say, you know, I'm sorry, God, you know, I'm the sinner. I need to be forgiven of my sins. You are the one who knows what's right. And when I did that, then that's when when um, the transformation happened in my own life. And that's what um, guys like Augustine, you know, were talking about, you know, when when they said, you know, I believe in order to understand. Mm-hmm. Faith, in a sense, is a complex thing and it's not arbitrary and it's not just, you know. Oh, just believe against all the facts it's it's not that's ridiculous that's a that's a simple an oversimplification that's ridiculous it's that all of us must believe in something all of us must have faith in some foundational thing or we can't live or understand like for instance we believe in logic right but of course how do you know logic is true you don't know it's true you just believe it's true, and then you see it work out, and then you understand how it works out as you as you use logic in the universe. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, is, in order to know that logic is actually true, you would have to be everywhere in the universe at every moment in order to know that logic is true at all times in every places, right? And you can't be that. You'd have to be a god to be that, right? And so, therefore... Uh, and we, we we think we've seen how it logic applies to life and it fits, but we don't know for sure. And we commit to it. We have a faith in logic. We have a faith faith in scientific principles, but we don't have the proof of them. So what I'm when I say uh, when I have that same faith that I might have in science or in logic, and I put it in God, it's like then I begin to understand God's ways because I've given up my. Desire to have myself as my own foundation. Well, we—if we, you want to—I don't want to sit here and be evangelizing all the time. So. What other issues? So the other one, uh, uh, like I have my
0: own concept of, of of what God is and why all this is happening and why we're experiencing it. And it's sort of like a combination of what's in the Vedas and and, and based on science and math. And my idea is that something in the universe, I don't know what, somehow became self-aware. And it says, oh shit. <laughs> like, why am I here? And the only way this consciousness could figure out why it was here is to run through every probability. And we are the result of one of those probabilities. And at the end of it, once it it runs through every probability, gets all that information back, then it may understand itself. Does that fall so get, into like any type of Christian paradigm, or is that completely against everything that's in the Bible?
1: So do you believe then that like intelligence or self-consciousness is, is emergent, an emergent property? Yeah. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. So it kind of it emerges out of complexity of some some form, uh, mm-hmm. becomes self aware. You know that kind of thing yeah yeah i i i don't um i don't believe that um i i think philosophically speaking you know everything um there must be something that is eternal or because we can never get how can i put it um there must be something that's eternal because we know that the universe has a beginning right Scientifically speaking, and so something has to be before that in order for it to to create it doesn't things don't self-create You can't create yourself because you'd have to exist before you existed You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So there can't be self-creation and there's and, and that means something has to be eternal And I know some t- scientists now are saying that well, the universe is eternal There is no Big Bang and you know they're trying to suggest that but I think that that, that means that the universe as a material entity that's contingent it could never get to this point if it's eternal because contingency is time bound. And so if there's a, if there's an eternal universe, we could never get to this point because in fact, um, the material processes do not operate that way. And so there has to be something transcendent of the material contingent subjective universe that has to be, uh, in, in, that has to be intelligence because intelligence, like, I don't think, I, I, I don't understand. I don't, I don't believe that intelligence emerges out of non-intelligence I don't think there's any scientific basis for that ever whatsoever and so intelligence has to be a pre-existing phenomenon in some way and um, and of course I believe that that ultimate intelligence is God right the mm-hmm. you know and then the question of course the question does become what kind of God is he and all that why the Christian God over this God but that goes down the other. That goes down on more of a, a, you know, another route of what. Okay, whatever you. What is your concept of God? And you ask yourself, okay, what's my concept of God? And then does that God provide the necessary preconditions for the intelligibility of reason, science, whatever? All the things that we assume or we believe in. Um, is there a foundation for that? And so, it, for so and and so to say that uh, intelligence um, evolves or emerges out of non-intelligence, there's not a single iota of scientific evidence for that. So I don't think that it provides a, that science is not a good foundation mm-hmm. for that
0: belief. But would non-intelligence be chaos, and we're saying uh, that that this came out of chaos?
1: Well, that's another thing: chaos and order, right? Mm-hmm. And I. Can order, can or I know that some people argue that order, uh, what's the word, um, arbitrarily is what I would call it. But order create comes out of chaos. You know, again, that's the self creation concept that I don't think is scientific. Number one, but number two, I don't think it's philosophically sensible because there's no scientific example of life coming from non life, of something coming from nothing. That's not even, that's philosophically incoherent, and it's scientifically impossible. Life coming from, I'm sorry, uh, something cannot come from nothing. Life cannot come from non-life, and intelligence cannot come from non-intelligence. Um, uh, so, uh, scientifically speaking, and and I also think, like I said, philosophically, you can't you can't create yourself. So, so I think that um, so yeah, there has to be something pre-existing, and it has to have intelligence because. Because nothing else can explain intelligence, I do. I do understand. I, I haven't read a lot about it, but I do. I do know that you know there is the belief, the emergent property belief, which is what modern evolutionary theory is, is arguing. But I just don't see there's any evidence for that. That there's any um, that is even feasible to think. I think it's a made up fairy tale, mm-hmm. to be honest. I really do. Um, but but here's here's the thing.
0: Well, then where does God get his intelligence from?
1: Well. The, the Christian notion is that God is eternal and so his intelligence, his his threeness, his personality, his morality, his moral character, all these things are eternal, rooted in his eternal character. And that's why when, when I talk about transcendence, you know, uh, when, you, when you're asking yourself, does my God provide the necessary preconditions for the intelligibility of what I believe? Like, do you believe that, that there is moral right and wrong? Mm-hmm. Okay. What defines moral right and wrong? You know there are many different theories of this, right. and you know my next novel actually is dealing with this. It's it's not a biblical novel. It's actually a novel about a serial killer, and it actually addresses it's called cruel logic. So for your listeners, if they want to be, it should be coming out in a couple months, and cool. um, they can sign up at gadawa.com if they want to find out when the novel comes out. But it's di- wrestling with this issue of morality, morality and the existence of God, and also you know. Atheism or whatever, how can you account for morality if you don't have a Christian God? And I don't believe you can. Mm-hmm. I really don't. Because um, in order to 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 claim that you believe, you know, morality, the definition of morality that I, as I'm using is that something is right whether or not someone feels it's right. You know, so like Hitler felt that it was, uh, I'm, I'm appealing to Hitler, the Hitler ad ad, ad agnosium ar- argument. But whatever, you know, the serial killer um, believes that... Uh, Uh, actually feels that that killing and eating this person actually does give him power and absorbs them and and it's right for him to do that. But we would say, no, it's wrong to murder because murder is not right or wrong based on how you feel. It's transcendent and it's objective. So a subjective feeling would say that serial killer subjectively feels it's right to kill them. Mm -hmm. But objectively would say, but objectively, you can't because it, it's not dependent on your feelings. Well, then the question comes, well, then who t- who defines what's right and wrong? Where is this transcendent objective? Of course, mine is rooted in the eternal character of, of the creator God. But if you don't have the Trinity, if you don't have the Christian God, then I would argue that it you're you are you don't have a foundation for morality. So, for instance, if someone's an atheist and they say, you know, well, it's wrong to murder, but... But, of course, um, there's no God. It's like, well, then who says it's wrong to murder? You know, it's like, some cultures believe it's good, some don't. So what if everybody believes it's right, but I th- or everyone believes it's wrong, but I believe it's right? Or what if everybody does believe it's right to murder as they mm-hmm. have in the past? And there's a legitimate Nazi argument, right? Um, it's like if you have no ob- objective, transcendent definition. Uh, origin for your definition of what's right and wrong mm-hmm. you have no right and wrong you just have molecules in motion colliding with each other that's ev- all reality reduces to that in an atheistic universe that's just one example of what i'm trying to explain and so um so you have to ask yourself what's your definition of god and 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 where does it come from um and is it even coherent mm-hmm. so and i would argue like i, like I said before uh, a, a, uh there is no such thing as a eternal being that becomes self-aware he would have to be he would have to be self-aware for eternity because he he could never he would be otherwise he'd be part of the contingent universe so it has to be a transcendent objective being of intelligence and it has to have a uh um uh, both unity and diversity which is the trinity right yeah. and so these are some of the some of the components of the way of the way i think in in you know, in that at least about that matter. Do
0: you think murder should be legal? Should what? Do you think murder should be legal?
1: No. No. Why? Why would you ask that?
0: Well, oh, because in the name of God, so many people have died. You know, like like, like the earlier like the story that you're talking about sure. um, Moses, where he goes and he kills off you know not all, but most of the 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 giants. You know. And even now in, in our society, you know, we're, we're, we're constantly are murder. Like, like with this war in, in, in Ukraine and Russia, we're providing yeah. weapons so people can murder each other.
1: Yeah, yeah. But I do think, though, that uh, biblically speaking, the, the definition of murder is to, to um, unjustly kill an innocent person if someone is guilty, like God himself is the one who gave us capital punishment, right? So, so he's, you know, biblically speaking, I, you know, um, that's, he says that in Genesis, right? Mm -hmm. Um, and, and then in, in the, in the, in the Torah, he gives rules on who is guilty and who's not. Um, if someone accidentally kills someone, they're not a guilty person deserving of death. But if you kill another person intentionally with premeditation with intention, you are you deserve to die Mm -hmm. now I would argue the Christian has or for that matter the Jew but more really more the Christian because the Jewish notion of God is not really accurate but the Christian notion is you cannot kill intentionally a human being because they're created in the image of God and you're desecrating that image so you are desecrating your creator but see, if you don't have that belief, mm-hmm. I would argue, then all your laws about murder are completely arbitrary, and they could change at any moment. So if there are if there are Nazis in control, then yeah, you can murder some people because it's not really murder because they need to to be exterminated because they're polluting the human race. See, so so, and it's not just the Nazis. I mean, communists do the same thing. You mm-hmm. can murder the non-communists who are stopping the progress of our utopian vision, right? So. So my point is, is that if you don't have the living God to stop man from mm-hmm. killing just because they subjectively justify it, then you can't have any foundation for making murder legal at all. You have to have God to make murder legal coherently. Of course, murder is illegal all over the world in lots of atheistic nations, right? Uh, by their definitions, of course, like I said, communists believe it's okay. Certain communist countries have believed it's okay to murder certain people. but. But my point is, is that that the fact that humankind does tend to have laws about murder, even though they're not Christian, mm-hmm. just reflects the fact that they have the image of God in them, they have access to the truth, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So they have a law for murder, but their own anti-God beliefs do not provide a foundation for that law. It's arbitrary. And so... um yeah. So therefore, like for instance, you know, the communist, the communist state, uh, makes murder illegal because makes only killing people um, is wrong because it goes against the benefit of the state. But then the state um, declares certain people as not beneficial. Therefore, it's okay to murder them, like the Uyghur, Muslims or Christians. Now mm-hmm. they enslave them first, but ultimately they, they do murder them in the long run, right? Uh, Or they enslave people in order to just, but why? Because the state is the god of communism. But if, but, but according to Christianity, that's wrong because there's a a law above communism. But if you're, if you don't have a Christian god, you have no law above your belief system. There's only the state, only the state, Um, and the state is the god of the system. So the state defines what's right and wrong. So you have no argument against the, the state if you don't have a Christian God as your objective transcendent uh lawgiver, so to speak. That's how that's what I would argue.
0: So does that mean it's okay for Christians to kill non Christians like Muslims? It's like convert or die?
1: No, because um that's not that's not acceptable to the God of the Bible. Where's that in the Bible? Well, um, thou shall not murder, which is taking an innocent life. And you know, there's there's no there is no command in the New Covenant to kill unbelievers, right? Because they're unbelievers. You know what I'm saying? Right.
0: I don't think Jesus was really even was he. I mean, he wanted people to believe, but he didn't seem like he was out using force
1: no absolutely not but here's my point I I would I would agree with you I would acknowledge. I would admit <laughs> that uh, yes history unfortunately has religious people killing in the name of God and even Christians you know killing in the name of God and I, I and that's again though we can only say that's wrong if we agree with the Christian morality which is you're not you should not kill people because of their belief system Um. And that's that's a Christian that's a Christian value uh, based on the Bible um, you don't have a right to do so because you have an mm. objective transcendent okay. moral um, and so what I'm saying is when we when we condemn Christians for murdering in the name of God it's because they're not they're not obeying God they're, their belief that you should kill in the name of God is not in the Bible is my point right. you know and then people will say, oh but didn't God say to kill unbelievers in the Old Testament you know uh, well, um, yeah, there was a certain there was a certain time in history with the when the way God dealt with humanity in the a brutal Bronze Age world, He had Israel as His nation, and in order for them to survive, He had to He had to move into that land. He had to kill those inhabitants, right? But He did not make that as a rule for all of history. Hmm. That was a, a specific time time rooted rule. And, in general, he gave the rules about war, which is don't be unjust, don't kill just to you know just to be evil or whatever. kill in self defense He gave laws about it's okay to self defend yourself it's okay to engage in war because war is if just war. If someone's attacking you, trying to kill you, of course, you have the right to kill them to stop them if you don't, they're going to kill you. so those kinds of values is what I would argue is what it, uh, is all about the law of God in the Bible. And um, people often point to uh, one historical instance where God was doing one thing specific but he and, and assume that, that that applies for all of history. And that's not the case, you know? And God is the one who had the right to call the Canaanites evil and to wipe them out. But we then, don't have the right to say that. But doesn't that make him a hypocrite? No, he's no, because he's the, kill, the creator. But
0: then he goes around and... Killing?
1: No, he's, he's the creator. So he can, he, if he says, I'm the creator, I created that Canaan, mm-hmm. Canaan's mine, and you don't deserve to be there. He's the creator. He can do that. Logically speaking, there's no moral problem with that. But if he does that, <clears throat> does that
0: mess up the free will aspect of it?
1: No, no, it, it is the free will. That's, mm-hmm. the, I think it, it, it enforces free will. You know, <clears throat> But he does say, <clears throat> excuse me, by the way, because here's the other component that I didn't talk about what does he say what do we find out the canaanites were doing well the canaanites were vile evil they worshipped idols which by the way in the old testament god did give israel the command that if you worshipped idols you would be executed but he no longer gives that command in the new covenant that's not the way things operate that's the way things operated in the old covenant some of, those, some of those ways have been done away with in Christ because God is dealing with us in a, in a new way. But in that time period, the Canaanites worshipped other gods. And these gods, they sacrificed their children in fire to Molech, for example. They were engaging in sex, perverse sexuality, like sex with animals. Incest was allowed. It's like, it was just truly grotesque and vile evil and so there's your justification in terms of the things they did were vile and and according to God's law they deserved to die but uh, but specifically the Canaanites once once the Jews got into the land of Canaan that was their land God gave it to them and I realize you know people say, well, that's not fair. Well, you're not God. If God says, I created the earth and I want this little portion of land for my people, Israel. I'm sorry, but if, pe- if people say that's not fair, then they're the ones who are deserving of being cut off from God because God is the one who created it so he can give it to whoever he wants. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I just don't understand why that's a problem, but, but, um, once they're there and they create themselves and they become a nation, then they have the rights of every other nation. And they're not, you know, they're not told to go off and conquer all the other lands. They, they're not. But when other nations come and try to fight them and kill them, God says, yeah, you you know, defend yourself, you know, kill them. But, uh, you know, but he has rules for for war, which means it's not. Anything goes for war. That's a moral concept of war. Whereas now, you know, as time goes on, I think humanity becomes more scorched earth, like every, every, anything goes for war. Mm-hmm. We used to have war. Like if you look at, in history, you know, like even 300 years ago, there were more rules in war that there are, than there are now, right? right? Like you wouldn't kill civilians, right? But now you do kill civilians. Mm-hmm. So what um, my point is is that, is that if there is no God and if the Christian God is not real, well, then there are no rules for anything. you could just do whatever you want, but if there is a Christian God, which I argue there is, yeah. <laughs> obviously and it's irre, you know irrefutable uh, then you then you are accountable to a transcendent objective moral value system rooted in God, otherwise anything goes and so I seek to find out what that transcendent set of rules says, and I seek to follow that
0: hmm. A couple of times now you've mentioned the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. What happened there? Did did God change his mind? And if he did change his mind, then that means he's not necessarily all-knowing, but what it points to me is that he's experimenting.
1: Yeah. Um, I don't think he experiments because um, first of all, I do think that in the Bible, there is terminology used of God that... um, God is transcendent, and and beyond us, right? Yeah. So, for us to even understand Him, He has to reveal Himself to us. I'm I'm speaking ph- philosophically, not just biblically. I would think if there is a God who created everything and He's transcendent, He's apart from us. He would have to reveal to us because otherwise we could never know Him, right? And if He's infinite, we could ne- we are contingent and finite, so we can't understand infinity. So therefore. He has to accommodate to us. He has to interact with us in ways that we can understand. So, therefore, if God were to communicate to us, as I believe He did in the Bible, He would do so within the cultural understandings that we have. He would use inaccurate—not inaccurate, but He would use imprecise language. Like, take for example, if you're trying to tell tell your kid, you know, you've got this little child, Mom, you know, Daddy, where do babies come from? You know, <laughs> they come from mommy's tummy. You know, mm-hmm. it's like. Well, you, we could argue that's not scientifically accurate, but we understand to creatures who do not understand, we have to work within their language and their understanding of the world to help them come to understanding. So that's why I believe, um, God is is a person, he's a, he's a personal being, he relates to us, but um, he's also transcendent, so he has to use things that describe him. Like he uses the concept, I'm a shepherd, you know, I'm a father to you. And it's like, yeah, these are accommodating terms. But um where was I going with that? What I'm sorry, I lost my track of thought. You were saying um, uh, the,
0: was, did God change his mind like oh, after the his old mind. covenant, covenant yeah, to yeah. the new one? Or, so there or, are
1: actually passages where it says God changed his mind in the passage. So I'm am not I'm not afraid to admit that. But if you understand it contextually, or like when Adam's in the garden, right? And Adam sinned, and God said, Adam, where are you? People say, well, if God's all-knowing, he would know where Adam is. Right, but what do we do with children when they sinned? We ask them, what have you done? And we know, when, we know they stole the cookie, but you, you're trying to get them to admit it. You, know, What have you done? That's how God speaks and relates to us. And from our perspective, he changes his mind in, in the sense that he changes his direction in history where he's interacting and operating with us. But what but but that doesn't mean he himself is like he didn't know, he learned something, he changed his mind. No, no. The best way we understand it is he changed his course of action. And we understand him in our own anthropomorphic terms. He's not a human being. Jesus did become a human being, true. But God the Father, the Creator. Who he is as creator is not a human being. We can't understand that. Mm-hmm. So we use human being terms as we're describing. God himself uses human being terms. Therefore, uh, what I'm trying to get at is, no, I don't think God actually changes his mind. It's using language to help us understand him changing his course of action. Um, but also, he, the, in terms of the covenants, I, I would argue it was his plan all along. Um, and uh, even, though, even though man fell and caused havoc, he planned ahead. This is why, this is why the, the Old Testament prophesied long, you know, thousand years ahead of time. There's going to be a Messiah. He's going to come. Things are going to be made new. But in the meantime, they had their old covenant. And so, what's the change? The change is this. The change is, is how God relates and interacts with us. I don't think it's 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 not God changing Himself or changing His mind or anything like that. It's He's He's just I, I would put it this way. Just like as a child gets older, we can be more accurate and change the way we interact with them, right? The baby doesn't come from mama's mm-hmm. belly. You actually have to have sex, and here's how you have sex, and, you know, and all this, and the womb, and all that. So I think in the same way, that's, that's how I see the New Covenant versus the Old Covenant. And the, the Bible says this in some so, ways. So where. humans
0: sort of reached a maturity.
1: Yeah. There is a maturity level. I I would argue. And haven't we, haven't we grown to some degree? Not all, but, but, you know, we look at ourselves technologically. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, in some ways we've become worse, right? Like here's the thing. So technologically, whoa, I I know, I think your, your podcast talks about ancient technology, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. But nonetheless, if we just go back, like say, uh, you know, 3000 years, 2000 years, right. And you think, wow, in 2000 years, you know, we now have airplanes, right. And, and so um, in computers or whatever, and uh, and certainly even if there's a if there's a, a destruction, and so we have to you know grow again, right? Like the mm-hmm. flood was a, a mass world, massive destruction. But what I'm getting to is um, so at, there is a, a growth, but the growth is not always upward. I would argue it sometimes it devolves. It's you know like um, morality, like we when we when, when we became more technologically proficient we became more technical at, we we ended up killing more people the 20th century has over like close to 200 million people murdered with modern technology that could never been achieved right. 500 years ago right? right so we've we've advanced with technology but we haven't advanced morally and so uh, but I do believe there's hope and growth for that area too um, and in the same way, the covenants operate that way. So, so in, the, in the ancient bronze, world, bronze Age world and such, God interacts with a people, a physical people, one people out of all the earth in one land to focus his work mm-hmm. and communicating himself, etc., cetera, et cetera. But he says, one day, and this is what he prophesies in the Old Testament, and this is what the whole point of it is. But he says, but one day, all the earth, the knowledge of the Lord shall be over all the earth because a Messiah, a, 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 an individual will come who will gather together all my people and all the Gentiles, which is everybody who's aren't Jews, right? At the time it was all the Gentiles are bad and Jews are God's people. But he says, but one day that's going to change and it's going I'm going to bring all the peoples can become my people and it will no longer be in one little land. It won't be one little nation of people it will be over all the earth and all the Gentiles will know my name. And that's, and that's what the new covenant is. That's why we have Christians all over the world and we're not Jews, right? Um, and so uh, the transformation there is from this one, I would guess I would say, from a physical nation on a localized territory of earth and that requires certain kinds of ways of interacting that are different once he says, now it's not, one people, one land. It's the whole earth. Everybody can become my children through faith in the Messiah. And by following him, you don't have to follow these, these, these you know physical laws of Torah. Now it's just faith and you can live out your connection with me in a different way than you used to in under this other covenant. And it's important that it's a covenant because the covenant is the God saying, I'm making an agreement. I'm, I'm committing to this. This is the way you and I are going to operate under these, you know, like a contract. It's more mm-hmm. than a contract, but it's similar, right? It's, it's, and, and, and now the contracts change. The covenant has changed. Okay, I'm going to work, I'm going to interact with people differently. And this is how, but I would argue that the New Testament or the Old Testament prophesied that. God was saying, I'm going to do this one day. So it's not like he, he, uh, he changed his mind. It was just, this is as man progresses or regresses. Eventually, I'm going to progress in the way that I interact with humanity. And that's the argument from the Bible, at least. Mm-hmm. So we and, have, and, and, so we oh, have the ahead.
0: Old Testament, we have the New Testament. What about if we apply some forward thinking to it? You know, now it's been 2,000 years again since the last one. Is there going to be a third testament, and what would be in it?
1: Ooh, that's speculative. Yeah, um, yeah I believe it, biblically speaking. You know, um, no, there, there isn't because, um, this was the the new Testament and Messiah was the culmination of everything that, that the old Testament was looking towards. Once God's spirit can now go over all the earth and all that, and anybody can become him, then it becomes a matter of, okay. And then this is what the Daniel prophet Daniel talks about. It says that in the days of these kings, um, the Roman Empire, a stone cut without hands, Messiah, will hit the statue. This is the vision he had. And that statue represented the worldly kingdoms that were controlling Israel. And it would, it would crush all the kingdoms. And, and it would become, and that, that's the kingdom of God. And that would to come in the days of the Roman Empire. And then that would grow to become a mountain to fill the earth. So what's left biblically? There's no need for another covenant because Christ is the final culmination of the covenant. And it talks in the Bible says like uh, the end of the age and stuff. This is where a lot of Christians um, have—sad to say—I I have to say—have been duped. They believe these these end times stories, the left behind, and you know the Antichrist and all that stuff. They misunderstand, they totally misunderstand Bible prophecy. Hmm. The Bible prophecy was about the ending of the age of the old covenant, roughly speaking. And it wasn't the end of of our time period, it was the end of their time period. So it
0: was misplaced
1: in the Bible? No, it was misunderstood by Christians. Mm-hmm. When the Bible says the end of the age is upon us, right? It meant the end of the old covenant age.
0: Right. So wouldn't it have made sense to put that at the end of the old testament?
1: Yes, and they did. It did, and then in the new covenant, in the New Testament, it says the, the Jews believed in two ages. There was the, the present age and the age to come, and what what did that mean? Well, what they meant was when Messiah comes, it'll create a new age, and so when in the New Testament time, they understood that they were in the the end of the age, which was the end of the old covenant age. Mm-hmm. Modern Christians will often they misunderstand all of that, and they think that has to do with the end of the earth. And all this stuff, you know what I mean? And but, but they're completely misinterpreting the Bible. Um, and so, yeah, even Christians can be wrong about things, about serious things, even because we're human. Um, so what I'm getting at is, this is why I don't believe there's a third testament. Is the whole point was the end of the age will bring in the new age of Messiah, and when Messiah comes, he will establish his kingdom on earth, but it will be a spiritual kingdom. In other words. This is where we get the notion it's not by force, like mm-hmm. Muslims will force you. Christians cannot force you to become a, uh, become a Christian. Um, it has to be by choice, by faith, by your, your own will. But, um, but as it spreads and people become Christians, the kingdom of God grows over all the earth and that's what's supposed to be happening. So who, long, who knows, how long will that take? Thousands of years, I don't know, but, but the point is, is now it, it's just for the kingdom of God to grow in the hearts of men and women Um, and, and that's, that's what we do is we spread that message and, and we convert people. We don't, um, we convert people through faith, Mm -hmm. not, not by the sword, not by, um, not like by Islam's means, you know? So does that mean I'm going to hell? Well, I don't know. Are you, do you believe that, uh, do you believe that, that Jesus Christ of the Bible died for your sins? I believe that. From the dead?
0: I believe that he was. Oh, here. How about the Book of Thomas? Okay. What is your take on that? Is it a legitimate part of the Bible that that was not a um I can't think of the word right now a scripture? Oh, that Oh, canonized. Not, was not put in, or is yeah. it? Uh, yeah, well, that's a, that's
1: a very complex issue. You're, you're referring to um, a pseudepigrapha, and, and what that means is I, I, I'm a person who I like, for my fiction drama, my narratives, mm-hmm. I like to draw from other ancient literature, like there are many books not in the Bible, like the book of First Enoch, uh, the yes. book of Jubilees. There are a lot of books not in the Bible, and I like to draw from them be, because what they were doing is they were trying to retell the Bible stories to make sense in their own time period, too. So. So I'm not against that intrinsically, okay? But the but the problem with some of them, like the Book of Thomas, is, you, um, and I think N.T. Wright has a great book on it, you know that that you sh- that people should read. Um, and I don't I don't know what it's called, but I'm sure you can find N.T. Wright and you know mm-hmm. put Thomas in the title. But the problem with the Book of Thomas is is that it's it's in terms of its um, archaeological um, what do they call it? It's, um, it's timing or whatever. It's, it's chronology. I can't, I can't think of it. In situ. It, it, it basically comes like, I think the earliest manuscript is like a couple hundred years after Christ. So, so it, it and it reflects the Gnosticism that grew up after uh, Christ. So, in the time of Christ, there, were the, there was the Manichaean religion, which was a Roman religion. I'm sorry, not Roman. Uh, Manichaean religion, which had Zoroastrian connections, mm-hmm. I think. And there were mystery cults in Rome. And there, there's always commonalities between occultic or mystery cults, <clears throat> meaning there's a pursuit of secret knowledge and the, initiative, the initiate uh, go, you know, has to either go through certain requirements or achieve something to to find the secret knowledge within that other people don't have, and so that's a common notion through mystery religions. Okay, but Gnosticism, and spe- specifically Gnosticism, has an actual sort of paradigm, and and it's not really developed until like after a hundred A.D., which is long after Christ. And so what I'm getting at is. Books like the Book of Thomas were written by people who were already Gnostics, and they were basically changing what the Gospels said, or they were taking pieces from the Gospel and spinning their own yarns from it to have Jesus say things that were he didn't say in in a in a serious way. You know, in other words, um, um, the way of salvation and such. You know, not. It's one thing if you just, um, how can I say like, the Book of Enoch agrees, by and large, with the Old Testament theology. Mm -hmm. It adds new information, and some people argue, should it be in the Bible or not, well, it's still helpful information. But the Book of Thomas and other Gnostic tracts, like um, tractates and such, like the Nag Hammadi library, that's all Gnostic, mostly Mm -hmm. Gnostic materials, those were written after the fact with the intent to um, to uh, justify their own theology. So I would argue that they they do not belong in the canon because they're made up long after. And the, the justification for books being in the canon of the Bible is a complex history itself, understood. But some of the factors are they had to have been written by or authored or tu- tutored by one of the apostles who actually lived and walked with Jesus and um, certainly for the New Testament and uh, uh, these other books were not. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the categories that tell people, okay, and it has to be in accord with the other books. Like it ha- theologically, there can't be contradictions, you know? And so um, Thomas has all kinds of massive contradictions. I haven't read it in a long time. I've forgotten a lot of the details to be honest with you. But I just know the man I know the basic Gnostic concept of the demiurge and, and the secret knowledge pathway. And those those concepts don't um, they do not jive with the notion of salvation in the Bible through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. So that's why I would argue it doesn't belong it, it, it doesn't belong in the in the Bible, Book of Thomas. And it's really more of a Gnostic, heretical—they call that heretical—in that time period, because it taught against what the Gospels were saying, rather than supporting them. That's what I would argue.
0: Interesting. Yeah. Now, like
1: I said, I have read it, mm-hmm. but it's been a long time. I'll be honest; <laughs>
0: right. it's been a while. There, you know, one of the interesting things I find about the Book of Thomas is that there have found certain texts in India. Buddhist texts that mention that Jesus was in India. That he was there talking to these Buddhist monks who, you know, you know, Buddhism started about 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And that's not anywhere in any of the Bible.
1: What are those? Uh, do, you know, do you know what those texts are that refer to Jesus? Uh,
0: I don't know them, the, the names of them offhand, but if you Google it, you'll find them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've never, I've heard that claim, but I've never looked into that.
0: Yeah, it's, it's interesting because you would think it, like, like somebody, I mean, what's one of the things with Jesus too is a good chunk of his life is missing. Yeah. In, in the scriptures. Yeah. I mean, what was he doing? Where was he? Hmm. Why is he not there? Why, why is that only really focused on like the last four years of his life?
1: Well, biblically speaking, I mean the reason why is because that's how he established his. You know, his his last three years are when he established his um, his uh, messiahship, and um, and his passion, and 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 his death and resurrection. So Mm -hmm. they wanted to focus on ministry. You know, he starts his ministry when he's baptized by John the Baptist, and that's an important thing biblically because baptism, um, uh, became, uh, a, you know, a Christian rite um, that identified a person committed to Christ. But, uh, John the Baptist was baptizing for cleansing and remission of sins at the time period. And I think when he, when he baptized Jesus, Jesus didn't have sins to be forgiven because I think he was, he was a sinless person, but it doesn't matter. I think that it, it was, he was um, engaging in an anointing. In other words, it was the anointing of the Christ to start his ministry. And at that point, Jesus, around well, 30, 30 years old or whatever, that's when he starts his ministry. So I think the Bible writers are more interested in his ministry because they, that was all about him bringing the new mm-hmm. covenant. When he's a kid and growing up, there's not, you know, they don't say much about him because. He's a kid. He's growing up. You know, it's like I. It's you know, like when someone becomes president. Sure, we're interested in some. I, I'll admit, sure, we're interested in some things that they did. But I mean, it's like that's when that's when that's when history takes note. You know mm-hmm. what I'm saying? So that's how I see that the, the New Testament is simply like, yeah, there could have been. They could have written John at the end of his gospel said, we could have written a library of books about what Jesus said and did. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the Living God. And so the point is is to prove his son his, that he's the son of God. He's mm-hmm. Messiah. He's forgiven us of our sins, and we can find salvation in, in Him. That's the point. So that's why they avoid the um, when he was younger. You but know, if,
0: if that were the case, though, we could have left out the entire Old Testament because, because it's all history. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> so, like why are progress. you going to include three thousand years of history and then skip thirty four years of the main yeah. character's
1: life? <laughs> well, well, that's well. Think about it, though. Think about it. this. Is the thing? This is where people make an unnecessary disconnection between Christians and Jews, or not Christians and Jews, but maybe Christianity and Judaism. Mm-hmm. Let's put it that way, right? Uh, Christianity is not a separate. How shall we put it? It's not. It's separate from Judaism now, certainly, but you have to realize that Christianity was actually a sect of Judaism, meaning it's the it. It's, it came out of Judaism and it was saying. Yeah. The Messiah that we, that we were looking for is here. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the Jews rejected it, and that's what separated Christians from the Jews, you know what I'm saying? But it wasn't originally that way. So in a way, the New Testament is just the, the concluding chapters of God's story. God has one story from Genesis to Revelation. We see two covenants, but it's still one story. And the New Covenant is kind of like the, the concluding chapters in the epilogue, you know, that kind of a thing. Mm.
0: How about the Church of Latter Day Saints and Joe Smith? Who? What about them? Is it BS?
1: Yeah, I, I I consider that Mormon Mormonism to be a cult, um, a non Christian cult. Mm-hmm. But they, uh, yeah, they have extra biblical revelation that they claim, and and um, you know I'm not I'm not the kind of apologist who's like can rattle off all the factoids. You have to if you want to look into Mormonism, if you want to look into opposing views of Mormonism, I would suggest looking at some of the, um, some of the ministries out there like, um, um, uh, what is it? The Bible answer man. Um, what's that called? Uh, Christian research Institute. They, they research these various religions and mm-hmm. cults and uh, Jehovah's witnesses and Mormons and stuff like that. And, and they explain how their extra revelation that supposedly comes from God, um, has no real actually was plagiarized, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, but I'm not the one to really, uh, argue about those details because right. I don't, I don't have the, the, those details, but I have found the Mormon religion to be interesting for some movies that have come out. Like there's a movie called a series on Hulu called under the banner of heaven. Hmm. And it was really an interesting, a murder story, a murder taking place in the Mormon community. And it's just it's definitely one of those fascinating uh, um, sort of like the Amish, you know, where they mm-hmm. you know, they've got a whole different way of doing things that's interesting and fascinating to hear stories about. But in terms of their religion and such, um you know, I do know that they believe that um for instance, God was once a man. the Creator God was once a man who became God. And that is antithetical to the Bible on every level, of course. Right. That God the Father is eternal, like I already said, you know. No, God's eternal. He's He's not created. He doesn't. He was not a man, and he and became God. Now God became man in Jesus, but that's different, right? And so, um, and that's and that's a serious serious misunderstanding. I think it also believes that um, Jesus was a uh, uh, brother of Satan, and that's not biblical at all. And you can see that that has serious ramifications of that belief. It's not just an arbitrary, silly belief. It's like, uh, no, making Jesus the son of Satan is, not the son, I'm sorry, the brother of Mm -hmm. Satan. But also, um, you know, in the end, there's, there, uh, Mormonism, I would argue probably is that it tends to, as all non-Christian religions end up being, it tends to be a system of Salvation through works, and you just give me a few minutes with a Mormon, and I could find out where they're at, and um, you'll you'll ultimately see a salvation by being a good person in some way, and that's that's one of the major distinctions between Christianity and all other religions. All of the religions are some form of self salvation. They believe man can save himself, right? You know uh Eastern religions you know um, uh, aligning your mind with with the right path um, you know um, experiencing different transcendental experiences or whatever but but they're always salvation through the self the self saves itself and um, and Christianity is the opposite it's man cannot save himself man or women cannot save themselves that we have to be forgiven by our creator and we 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 experience that through having faith but but the point of it is is that we cannot save ourselves through being good because we can't be good mm-hmm. we have to be transformed from the inside out and only god can do that and when you know the idea there is that when you you know when you uh, repent of your sin and you put your faith in christ you get the Holy Spirit, like literally somehow, I don't know how, but you know somehow the Holy Spirit comes inside of you and changes you and and makes you a different person. And obviously, it takes time. But but um, why that's so important is that that's a salvation that it that God provides. God's in control. God's the one who is is doing things, and you can't be a good enough person and end up in heaven. And and pretty much all other religions believe that in one form or another. It's different forms of it. But I think they all reduce to saving yourself. And that is the ultimate affront to the Christian God, to Yahweh, our creator, Mm -hmm. to say that I can save myself or I can be good enough to warrant going into heaven when in fact the essence of the gospel of Christ, of the Bible is, what is god's standard of righteousness yeah okay see if you're good enough to go to heaven well look at the ten commandments okay have you kept the ten commandments nope (laughs) uh and it's like okay so you're not good enough to warrant god's heaven you can't you have to be forgiven you have to be atoned for you cannot be good enough to warrant standing in in the presence of a holy perfect god you must be made holy and you can't do it because you are unholy, you are unclean, you are sin- sinful. God does not allow sin in His presence, right? That's the essence of Christianity. That's why any any other religion, every other religion that says, you know, well, you know, we seek if we do these rituals, if we do these, these, um, uh, if we're good to our neighbor, if we love our neighbor, if we're good enough, then then you know we'll be good enough to to, to warrant going to heaven when we die. And it's like that's what all of the religions say. And in my opinion from the bible's perspective that's an offense to god to, to claim that mm. that's like adam in the garden saying i can decide what's good and evil <laughs> you know so there you have it there's my <laughs> there's my fanatical christian beliefs trying to interact with your questions <laughs> <It's been helpful. laughs> fascinating. my nutty christian beliefs
0: uh, and thank you for uh coming on and uh putting up having. with my questions and me playing no, love it. devil's advocate you know
1: i hope you i hope you i hope you i hope you liked what i i hope that i was a good guest that's it i you hope i was entertaining
0: very good excellent i'll definitely have you back on again
1: cool
2: um,
0: before we wrap it up where's the best place for my listeners to find you and find your books
1: well i do have a website gadawa.com i have a lot of free information cool things mm-hmm. there you know it's it's a good it's a cool website but you know, if you just want to go to, all my books are on Amazon, exclusively Amazon, in paperback, audiobook, and ebook. So you can, and, and you know, when you go to Amazon, if you know Amazon, you, you type in my name, mm-hmm. you'll, you'll see all my books and, and descriptions and everything. So if you go straight to there, um, you'll probably have enough information to decide if you want to buy any of the books. <laughs> Let's put it that way.
0: I'll put a link to your website and to your Amazon page in the notes of this episode so my listeners can find you.
1: Great. Thanks a lot, Gary. All right.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you for being on. I hope you enjoyed it. And um, just hang on for one moment while I play the outro.
2: or message him at everythingimaginable2020 at gmail.com. He's also on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. You can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, and other merchandise to support the cost of producing this podcast. Click on the merchandise link at the top of this page, www.everythingimaginable2020.com you can also buy the book enlightenment guarantee it's the only book on Zen that you'll ever need you can find it on amazon and it will change your life because remember everything that it says was first imagined if you loved what you listened to today don't forget to rate subscribe, and share. Again, thank you for listening to Everything Imaginable with Gary Cochulio.